Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Formed Book Club. We've had a hiatus here of about three weeks. Uh, we're still discussing Chesterton's book or the collection of his essays called In Defense of Sanity. And uh, last session, we ended with the chapter on Jane Austen in the general election. That was a scintillating discussion we had, which I don't recall. I also don't recall what I said about a previous chapter on a humiliating heresy, which is on page 187. So I want to say just a couple of things and receive comments, if there are any. Uh, and again, I may be re repeating myself. That happens sometimes at a certain age. On page 187, beginning of the chapter, three lines down, Chesterton writes, popular preachers and fashionable novelists can safely repeat that men are only what their destiny makes them, that there is no choice or challenge in the lot of men. Now, I thought, well, is that really, do we have any, really have people considering that we're automatons, we have no free choice, it's all destiny? But then on page 188, I think the question is answered. In the new paragraph there, there are all sorts of ways in which this humiliating heresy expresses itself. One is a perpetual itch to describe all crime as lunacy. That is to say, is a mental a result of mental defects or something the criminal is incapable of, you know, controlling himself. And that certainly is the case. So often we see that uh, a crime is committed and the defense is insanity, you know, or not enough mental competence to make that decision. I, I think that is part of this heresy of a, uh, we're, we're the prisoners of our destiny. My third point, or maybe my second one, I want to say something about page 189 at the bottom. I found this kind of fascinating comparing Greek tragedy with Shakespearean tragedy. Four lines up, he says, for the play of Macbeth is, in the supreme and special sense, the Christian tragedy, to be set against the pagan tragedy of Oedipus. It is the whole point about Oedipus that he does not know what he is doing. And his whole point about Macbeth that he does know what he's doing. It is not a tragedy of fate, but a tragedy of free will, both capitalized. I found that a very interesting insight. And I, I, would like to I would like to comment on that if I, if I could. Yes, though. please do. Um, I, I, and I'm not disagreeing with Chesterton here, but I think the interesting thing is that Macbeth begins as a truly Christian man who understands nobility and virtue and free will, um, but through malicious choices and evil choices ends by being a nihilist that believes nothing nothing means anything. Those famous lines at, at, at the end of the play after he's already become a serial killer. Whereas Oedipus actually, uh, not so much an Oedipus Rex, but an Oedipus at Colonus, 
comes to embrace an understanding that the acceptance of suffering is the beginning of wisdom and that this is something which is pleasing to the gods. And Oedipus at the end of that play is actually assumed into heaven miraculously by the gods for coming to this wisdom. So in actual fact, Oedipus is ascending towards heaven as a pagan, as Macbeth as a Christian is descending towards hell. Wow. Wow, yeah. Way to go. I, I would just like to add as a footnote that an even more recent example of crime being seen as destiny is this movement now in jurisprudence to come up with these algorithms that will predict when a person will commit a crime and apprehend him before he does. Yes, I heard an entire discussion of this on national public radio, and let me tell you, it was chilling. And 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 the the, the grounding assumption of that is that a person is destined to do certain things, and we need to stop him before he does. Wow, yeah, it's scary, yep. absolutely yep. scary. Yeah, yeah, yep. And my final comment on page one ninety, about third of the way up from the bottom. He says, almost all our pseudoscience proceeds on the principle of saying that one thing follows on another thing and then dogmatizing about the third thing that is to follow. And we see this all the time of trends. You know, if it got warm between 1972 and 1986, then it's going to get warmer, right? Or if we found so many cases of COVID between June and August, then it's going to, the trend is up. Well, then from September to November, it's going to go up even further. It's not really science. And the stock market works that way too. Oh my gosh, it's a rising market. Let's buy. Well, guess what? It may be rising over time for a while in a bull market. But if you look at it more carefully, it's a very jagged line that it follows. So I just want to mention that as something which I think is contemporary relevance. All right, so we go on to. On essays? Yeah, page 201. I've been talking a lot. I'll let someone else begin if he or she wishes. Well, I'll defer to Vivian unless she wants me to go first. Uh, well, it, the, the first thing that strikes you, of course, is the irony that he's criticizing the form of the essay and he's writing an essay, yes. right? Yes, yes. And, and indeed, that's where he does most of his time and makes most of his money doing <laughs> yes, yes. So that's that's funny. But I think maybe when I read it more carefully, I realized, um, well, that depends on the essay, because then he goes on to compare the essay with the thesis, you know, on 202. He says the medieval man, this is the bottom thought in terms of the thesis, where the modern man thinks in terms of the essay and there's kind of a false dichotomy there because when I was taught to write essays in school, we first had to have a thesis. And the point of the essay was to prove the thesis. And so I think what Chesterton is criticizing are wandering theses or wandering essays that don't have theses, don't prove anything and end up nowhere. Yeah, I, th I, th I think what he's, what he's saying is that the problem with the form of the essay uh, unlike, for instance, the form of the sonnet, which he also mentions early on in the essay, is that the form of the essay is so loose that it enables uh, 
certain certain essayists to take liberties with uh, uh, with with reason, and that's what he's really getting at there. That the, the looseness of the form. I mean, what is an essay? I mean, try to uh, define what an essay is. We can all define what a sonnet is, right? But can we define what an essay is? It gets very vague, and I think that's his problem here. There's something very impressionistic and relativistic in the form of the thing itself that allows people to take liberties with it. I think that's that's the key factor here. Right, and this wandering, the greatest line to me in the whole essay on 204, the, the end of the top paragraph, after a certain amount of wandering, the mind wants either to get there or to go home. Yeah, <laughs> it is I, one I, thing I, to travel hopefully and say half and jest that it is better than to arrive. It is another thing to travel hopelessly because you know you will never arrive. Yeah, and I love this. And one of the reasons I love this, what's the date of this one, 1930, yeah, um, is that I like finding connections between my favorite writers and certainly the influence of Chesterton on Tolkien and Lewis is a hobby of mine. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is a this is Chesterton um, um, commenting upon Robert Louis Stevenson's line, it's, it, uh, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. Uh, and in Tolkien's essay lecture on fairy stories, he actually quotes that and says it's certainly not uh, better to travel hopefully than to arrive. They do have to travel hopefully in order to arrive, which seems to me to dovetail very nicely what you've just read of Chesterton's. I would like to make a contemporary application here uh, the very first sentence is there are dark and morbid moods in which I am tempted to say, to feel that the evil, that evil re-entered the world in the form of essays. So he says in the time of thesis where you had something to say, you try to prove it or disprove it, it didn't wander. Then you move to the essay, which is a shorter form than the classic disputation. But I would say what's happened is we moved from thesis to essay to tweet, and evil has reentered the world. I mean, what kind of communication can you have when you're limited to 142 characters, even if you use some oddball, uh, you know, contractions like the, letter, the number four for F-O-R, you know, and the letter U for Y-O-U, and other such things, or B-T-W for, by the way, I mean, I think the tweet can be used for some good things, but I think it so lends itself to evil use that it probably should be abolished. Father, first of all, I am, I am, I am uh, mortified and not not to say horrified to know how well you speak Twitterish. <laughs> um, but also, and ironically and coincidentally, I actually gave a radio interview um, only about an hour ago where the, the interviewer, who was a Chestertonian, said that Chester would be very, very much at home uh, in, in the modern social media world because of his power of a aphorism. And yes. he would say he'd be very, very, very good in the world of Twitter, at which you know, the Luddite in me rolled my eyes. And thankfully, in a radio interview, nobody can see that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although, if, I mean, if Chester were writing tweets... I probably would be a follower because he has the ability to say wonderful things in in very crisp phrases. However, ordinarily, even though he's quoted a lot, 
it's the whole context which makes the quote valuable. It's not just the quote in itself. Yeah, so I've never tweeted in my life, and I wouldn't know how to do it. But I must confess, if there was a Chesterton out there that was that was tweeting, I might be tempted to Twitter, if that's the correct word. Um, but uh, what what, you know, what what I would say is that Chesterton also said, of course, that the the coming period is standardization by a low standard, and I think that that that, that the Twitter is an example of that. Well, and actually, that's happened in many different ways too. Uh, the very fact we have digital cameras which makes it inexpensive to take pictures and you can take picture after picture after picture. Well, all of a sudden you're, you're lost in a sea of mediocre pictures uh, as opposed to when it took time and expense to make a photo, people would be more careful about what they would take pictures of and how they would frame the picture and so on. So yeah, there, we, the technological progress uh, brings along with a, a certain negative effect. Uh, and it happens with, with, with writing too. I mean, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. I don't write letters anymore. I, I, I send emails. Well, you don't have to have to sit down and actually write it out and think about it and correct it. You can produce something worthwhile to make a collection of. Do you really want to have a collection of somebody's emails? Now, Thomas Howard, yes. I would say Thomas Howard's emails would make a great collection, but most of us, not so much. I would say I've attempted to just do a, a gentle rebuttal when you, just by merely correcting you, by saying that I would say that um, technological progress occasionally brings something positive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you're in you're in great Lewisian, Ch uh, Chestertonian, Tolkien-esque uh, company with something like that. Uh, any other? Comments we should make on the essay on essays? Not from me. Well, uh, this next essay may take us longer to comment on than we have time for, but let's try it. On evil euphemisms. I mean, talk about something which is contemporary. This is it. This is it. Yep. Starting well, it's, it's with... Like one written, hardly knows where to start. But I know. Know. Well, I think you can start by... He begins with the, this book titled Companionate Marriage, so-called because the people involved are not married and will very rapidly cease to be companions. <laughs> what a fabulous way to start this essay with something so comic, you know, and but boy, does it ever get yeah. darker fast, right? Because on page 206, these friends of frankness depend almost entirely on euphemism. And then he starts to go through a list of modern euphemisms we're all familiar with birth control, free love, and so on. And right when he's getting serious again, then he gets hilarious again, right? That at the bottom of that page, the sensitive youth of the future will never be called upon to accept forgery as forgery. It will be an easy, easy enough to call it homeography or script assimilation. <laughs> <laughs> but then the essay turns dark again with uh, murder, the justification of murder through euphemisms. Would anyone else like to go there? Because I've been talking a lot. 
No. Well, Continue. Well, I mean, on one hand, he's got humor here, too, because, all right, 207, the social justification of murder that has already begun, and earnest thinkers had better begin at once to think about a nice, inoffensive name for it. So <laughs> there is hardly one of us who does not, in looking around his or her social circle, recognize some chatty person, that would be me, or energetic social character whose disappearance without undue fuss or farewell would be a bright event for us all. (laughs) (laughs) He's saying, you know, look out, people. If we come up with euphemisms for murder, we're going to start bumping off the neighbors we don't like. Oh, my gosh. And calling calling it social subtraction. Yes, calling it social subtraction. I mean... Oh, oh my a, a, a life control. Life control. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, he's talking about something deadly serious, and he's just so darn funny while he's doing it. That's just pure genius. Yeah, and again, the spin on free love, you know, that something like such as euthanasia or murder is free death. Right? Yes. Yeah. Not charging death. for it, you know. And, and we, we, I mean, he's a prophet. We do have euphemism for murder. Termination of pregnancy. Yep. Death with dignity. Yeah. You know, and that's why page 206 at the top, he says, everything is to be recommended to the public by some sort of synonym, which is really a pseudonym. It is a talent that goes with the time of electioneering and advertisement or advertisement and newspaper headlines. But whatever else such a time may be, it is certainly not especially a time of truth. And at the, towards the bottom of that page, he says, there really seems no necessary limit to the process. And however far the anarchy of ethics may go, it may always be accompanied with this curious and pompous ceremonial. I mean... And the time, I mean, it's, it's, it's 90 years ago this was this was published. Uh, but you look at this, the, 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 the time of electioneering and advertisement and newspaper headlines. Well, politics, big business, big media, electioneering, advertisement and newspaper headlines. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's absolutely the mark of prophecy. Because it's the mark of prophecy because it was already in place in his time. It's just become more accentuated since. That's right. And as the, the great Monsignor Bill Smith used to say, William Smith of happy memory, uh, social engineering is always preceded by linguistic engineering. That, that as you invent some euphemism to make a horrid thing you want to accomplish uh, sound less offensive. Absolutely. We're surrounded by it. Well, I think we have another five or six minutes. You want to move on to a plea for prohibition? Yes, this is another absolutely delightful um, essay. And, of course, Sidelights, uh, is, is, it, it was published in Sidelights. I think that the full title of that was Sidelights side on uh, New London and Newer York or something. It, it's largely a, um, his second volume of Reminiscences, 
about his second visit to the United States. And both of his visits to the United States were during the period of prohibition. So obviously, you know, that there was a temperance movement which came to nothing. But for an Englishman to come and experience prohibition, of course, would have been uh, um, uh, something worth commenting upon. And what I love about it is that he actually, rather than fulminating, he actually sees the positive consequences of evil politics. And again, in our day, when we see an awful lot of evil politics, I mean, I think, for instance, uh, in, in the, the Covidious times we're living in, in the growth of homeschooling, for instance. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we, the, the point is that there can be good consequences uh, from from evil actions, and I think that this this uh, plea for pro- prohibition is analogous to the times in which we perhaps find ourselves now. Yeah, I, I titled this one or captioned it "Delightful Irony," uh, and I like especially the, the because his whole point, as you say, was well, when you prohibit the the sale and, pr- and production of uh, spirits of beer and wine people will make their own and we get back to craftsmanship you know and and uh self-reliance well i like his last paragraph this being the case it seems that some of our more ardent supporters might well favor a strong simple and sweeping policy let congress or parliament pass a law not only prohibiting fermented liquor but practically prohibiting everything else. Let the government forbid bread, beef, boots, hats, and coats. Let there be a law against anybody indulging in chalk, cheese, leather, linen, tools, toys, tails, pictures, or newspapers. Then it would seem by serious sociological analogy, all human families will begin vigorously to produce all these things for themselves. And the youth of the world will really return. (laughs) <laughs> Amen. Amen. And I must admit, I am actually drinking um, an Abbey Owl made by the Benedictines from Nursia, those English Benedictines out there, in honor of this essay. And I and I, and I, and I do actually want uh, this the, the delightful scene given here, the bottom of page 211. I would say, by the way, I, I am, in, for anybody who's scandalized by this, I'm in Eastern time. It's five o'clock somewhere, and it's five o'clock here. Okay. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. Um, but towards the bottom of page 211, just this, I mean, this is obviously a, a real, uh, this is something he experienced in the United States. I know an American university where practically every one of the professors brews his own beer, some of them experimenting in two or three different kinds. But what is especially delightful is this, that with this widespread revival of the old human habit of home brewing, much of that old human atmosphere that went with it has really reappeared. I mean, there were stories when he came over here of... <laughs> Now, him, him visiting a priest, you know, in a rectory uh, and uh, the, the priest pulling a volume from, from his shelf and just setting it aside and putting a bottle of <laughs> whiskey <laughs> behind it. I mean, please do like, I mean, this is, this is what we would uh, actually call healthy dissidence, right? Well, you know, the, 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 you know the, we, we dis- healthy dissent. We are dissidents against unjust laws. And again, in an age where, of burgeoning big government, it, these are all good things to to be um, contemplating, right? Ways that we we break unjust laws without getting caught. Good. Well, let us. Uh, I'll drink to that. All right. <laughs> I'll drink some of my homemade wine to that. Uh, so we'll begin next time with the American Ideal on page two thirteen, and until then. Uh, We'll see you all later. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, 
Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.